You're listening to Drinking on the Job, D-O-T-J. I'm your host, John Coyle. Drinking on the Job is a toast to the culture of food, wine, and all things fermented. We'll be talking with winemakers, musicians, artists, late-night bartenders, scoundrels, and more. It's time to grab a glass before its last call. Today, we get to chronicle the epic wine journey of Brad Hickey, his alter ego, Brash Higgins, and the life he built on his walkabout. DOTJ podcast now with over 100,000 downloads starts now. Today, I am in Australia, McLaren Vale to be exact with Brad Hickey, owner, winemaker of Brash Higgins, possibly his alter ego, which we'll discuss, and uh, a winery that's just doing groundbreaking work uh, in Australia, which we're going to talk about. Brad, how are you doing, man? I'm good, John. I'm surviving the winter yeah. here and all the various lockdowns and the things that are throwing our, our, our nation into a tizzy. But I'm surviving okay. Thank you. Cool. Yeah. Well, we got about 102 degrees today in New York City. So I know hmm. Australia is, uh, you know, one of the hottest places on the planet so normally. So uh, we're getting a little dose of uh, Aussie. Uh, so I'm gonna, before we really get into it, I got to tell you um, something I thought about today. Uh, you were originally a landscaper. So we're going to talk about how you got where you are. But 22 years ago, my friend, uh, you helped me put a tree in my yard. Uh, we buried my wife's placenta and put a tree on top of it because it's incredibly nutritious for plant life. And it's a good way to recycle stuff and uh, uh, respect for mother earth. And uh, we did a little family ceremony, uh, which I think you were grinning through most of the way, uh, but the tree is still standing. It's still alive and wonderful. So we're going to talk about like you went from landscaping and then uh, landscaping into the wine business business. Just so just, and by the way, is Brash Higgins your alter ego? Yes, it is. Okay. It is. First of all, I'll, First of all, Australia is cold this time of the year, so I'm wearing a knit cap and I have a stuffy nose because it's yeah. been it's a bit like Seattle here in the winter, and especially yeah. in South Australia. That's right. It is winter there, yes. They, uh, Aussies have a penchant for giving nicknames, sometimes good ones, sometimes bad ones. I think when I was traveling here in 2007, yeah, I was working with a group of pruners over winter, over this time of the year, and um, nobody in the pruning crew had their given name. They were all... Knackers and Bobo and Whiskers and Bed Sores. <laughs> bed Sores uh, not a good one, man. That's oh. not a good name. <laughs> and uh, Trigger. And uh, I think they're all wanted by the police, so nobody really had their, their name. Uh, and so I think to be part of their crew, they christened me Brash, sort of the Brash New Yorker. Right. Uh, and that was pretty good. That was traveling during the George W. era. So foreign policy was a bit of a, a dodgy subject overseas. But uh, it was a good nickname when it stuck. So... Mm. So, so just we're going to get there, but so landscaping sure. to New York, then to Australia before, before the big walkabout. Uh, so what, what brings you to New York? What's that um, first part of this? I lived in I lived in Paris when I was in my 20s, which was a massive sort of obviously cosmopolitan city and came back to the States and chose Portland, Oregon over all the different cities because of its had a really great vibe. It was beautifully located on the northwest coast, as you know, and mm. And in the 90s, there, it had a sense of humor and it was really fun. And a lot of young kids, um, overeducated kids wandering around. And I started doing landscape design there to stay out of hospitality. And then I, it was a great job where I could get a pickup and then hire all my out-of-work literature major friends 
and philosophy <laughs> major friends. And, you know, you could smoke a little weed and sort of just out there in nature, planting trees and designing gardens. It was a, it was a great time. And, but the big city of New York always kind of loomed. And I had friends that were working in the sort of glossy magazines back then. And uh, they kept sort of waving and these sort of, you know, um, enticing um, carrots in front of me, I guess. And I had sort of dreams to go on about being a writer and uh, made the leap and uh, drove cross country to New York City to, to give it a shot and, and stuck it out for 10 years, a couple of missteps along the way, but um, got entrenched in New York. And then at that stage had to sort of make some money to sort of stay alive in restaurants. So you hus- were you hustling freelance writing like articles and pitching uh, nonstop to uh, at the time, probably New York magazine and the New York times and uh, people or whatever, right? Is it, was that part of it? Yeah. 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 I mean, it was, it was just mostly trying to talk about, you know, personal essay stuff. I mean, not that I was Joan Didion or anything nearly of that caliber, but you know, oh, so you, you, like got, you were pitching Atlantic then, huh? The Atlantic Valley. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, it's more like magazines, like details and spin, you know, okay. like oh, slice yeah, of life sure. type of stuff. Like what's it like to be a house guest in New York city and you know, cool. all of you. Yeah, it was all right. And then, um, but it didn't really pay very well. And certainly no. in New York, you got the, you got your clock, you know, kicked if you didn't um, start making some cash. So I started working with um, Danny Meyer. I thought that'd be a good job. I figured if I'm going to work in restaurants, I might as well work at the best one I can. And Union sure. Square Cafe was uh, was that place, and that sort of opened my eyes to wine programs and that whole that whole vocation, which I didn't even know existed. The idea of buying wines for restaurants mm-hmm. and Karen King introduced me to to that, and I kind of really embraced it and really got into it because I thought that was the sort of real intellectual side of restaurants to me. It was uh, learning the wine lists and wandering around the floor and taking on some of that responsibility. And then that led to my next sort of interview at the St. Regis at the Les- at Lespinos, the famous um, wow, sure. four, four-star New York temple. Mm-hmm. And that really much set the tone. That was another, you know, a year and a half working as a stage um, down in the dark cellars of, of the St. Regis. The, bit of the hotel. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's how I got to New York though. And then from there, I just kind of, I just, you know, once you yeah. start working at four star realm, you can kind of, kind of go. You, you managed to wait to get into some of the top wine programs. I mean, you were at uh, Balud, I think when we first met, was it cafe Balud? That's it. Yeah. Right. I remember meeting you there for sure. You did yeah. it. You felt like you were interviewing her for a, uh, you're, you're doing an audition for a, <laughs> <laughs> I get the job. Like, yeah. Uh, but job. that's a that's a pretty prestigious job to have, um, and then um, I mean that was back in the Zinfandel day. My my one cafe Balud story was you weren't there one night. And I went in and I forget the gentleman's name. It was a French guy, maybe Olivier, and uh, I went in and uh, I think I was getting like I, I was getting the tasting menu, and I said, "Why don't you tell me what I should be drinking?" And he brought me over some Jackass Zinfandel, and I didn't know quite how to take it. Uh, like is this guy just fucking with me or he thinks i'm this stupid or he thinks i just drove in from somewhere and i'm like you know what thank you oh my god that's so nice of you but let me see the wine list uh, <laughs> uh but then we, we we kind of became buddies and then then you were at uh uh david boulet was there a stop in between yeah there was there was a dark yeah. period yeah oh okay now oh okay here we go yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that was the first position at Cafe Blue. It was way out of my realm. I wasn't ready for that. And uh, 
I was the guy that took all the sales meetings and wanted to be everybody's friend and didn't really understand budgets. And, and it was a, um, it was a steep learning curve there when someone offered me their private seller and I started buying old Ridge Montebello's and, and Jean-Luc Ledoux came down to my cellar and he's like, fucking hell. He's like, you've got more Ridge Montebello than I do, Danielle. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> like this could be a problem. Yeah. Were you selling it or were you storing yeah. it? <laughs> I was selling it to yeah, guys like you. You know, like here. <laughs> trying to, oh, okay. We just figured out why I was being pitched Turley. Right. He was going through your inventory. Yeah, we had a he, well actually Olivier replaced me because I wasn't I wasn't okay. there that long. They said is if you ever hear from Marcel, the accountant from Danielle, you know you're in deep shit. Cause okay. you know, and I got a call from Marcel and I'm like, oh no, I think my time here is limited. He's like, we it's like I was wondering why we couldn't buy curtain rods for the new DBGB downtown. And I was like, oh fuck. <laughs> That was my fault. Sorry. I thought I was still running a multi-million dollar grand award seller. And they're like, no, 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 no. This is a neighborhood restaurant. Cafe Palouse. Yeah. Um, so I mean, from there, I kind of bopped around. I worked at the old town. Remember that? Um, uh, Chambers, the Chambers Hotel, Jeffrey Zakarian's town oh, restaurant. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I do remember so, that. Sort of subterranean dining room, very strange space. Yeah. And then, yeah, then I went to a couple of other places that were sort of even more sort of opprobrious. And then I ended up at uh, Abdullah after 9-11, mm-hmm. uh, just working as a captain, just getting a gig and and then migrated into the role of wine director. Um, that was a fairly tumultuous place. So there was a lot of a lot of revolving door type stuff. I remember at one point uh, you were buying a fair amount of wine for me and I was very happy. And, but you were really unhappy. And I think your biggest concern was you said, I don't know if it, like any day I walk in, I could get fired. Um, it's a high pressure situation working in uh, a super fine dine, dining restaurant like that. And I remember we had this conversation. I said, leave, do something else. And you were, and you were just dumbfounded because you're like, wait a minute, man, I'm like one of your best customers. I'm like, I don't really give a shit. I can find somebody to buy wine for me, but I felt we were friends at that point. I was like, I'd rather see you happy. Um, and, uh, and so, so how does, so we're going to get the, like, how do you, where do you start falling in love with Australia? Like, is it a, a set of wines? Is it uh, a winemaker? I mean, I mean, let's, that's a big jump from New York yeah. city to Australia. Um, so like, how does that happen? Like, is it is it wine driven, personality driven, or just wanderlust? It's well, it's a combination. And actually, you played a pivotal role in that. There was a there was a yeah. I worked at Boulay for like four and a half years, and the first couple of years were were fantastic because that dining room and that that you know the the sort of platform there to be anything in the food world and wine world was was out of sight. It was exciting, changed all the time. Mm-hmm. I had pretty good job security because I was making a lot of money for the wine program. I was like one guy in a three-star, you know, restaurant running like two stations, like an air traffic controller out of control um, and made it work and was doing right. elaborate wine pairings and all these expensive wines. But it was it was crazy pressure because it was just me. Right. And then, yeah, by the end of it, though, I'd had another couple of after about four years, I think, yeah, you start to. Probably that's a very long stint for David Boulay, considering the intensity. It is, and, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a high pressure scenario for sure. I'm going to yeah. give you one quick sense of memory experience. Uh, anyone who's ever been to Boulay, I want you all to close your eyes, open that door and just smell all the apples. Do you remember the racks of apples when you walked in? Yeah. I, I, I still did. I still think of that. I mean, such a, a, an amazing way to enter a dining room, this kind of uh, your old factory sending you on a journey um, into something 
uniquely, you know, you'll always remember for that restaurant, right? Yeah. Yeah. He was a special chef and he brought that Michelin aesthetic to New York city back in Tribeca Mm -hmm. and was probably responsible for turning that, that neighborhood into, you know, something a lot more she, she than it was back in the eighties and and also wall street and all of his Goldman Sachs and all of the, the investment bankers and everything that, that populated that dining room were, you know, very legendary big spenders and, and, and had a, you know, went wherever he took them. Yeah. yeah I remember like Bangladeshi bus boys changing those apples out, you know, every couple yeah. of days, like the <laughs> job of the guy pulling out the bad ones and putting in fresh ones. And you're like, did they is... do any make cider or something with them or just, they just toss them. Now let's hope they definitely composted that. Sure. They went to a better place. There we go. There we go. Um, you know what it is right now? It's a city bank. And I it think is. about it because, you know, they had those beautiful arched windows and yep. the arched windows are there. And now it's a city bank. Um, yeah, man, there were some stories about that place. It was not a great restaurant scenario. I was storing wine in a walk-in refrigerator, which was unreal. It was just like piled on piles. And I was like, this is, if people could just really see what's happening here, they would well, be horrified. Yeah, well, I remember like that is kind of, it's funny. It's uh, Pichelin was the same way. You had this incredible restaurant and they would store wine under the banquettes. Like the cushions would come up and there'd be $1,000 worth of wine you'd be sitting on in a room that's not particularly cool. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, but the epic lunches at uh, Boulay, like the idea, I'd, like if you went to lunch at Boulay, you'd just have to go, well, I'm going to go to lunch. It's a five hour lunch, period. Yeah. Right. I mean, you just, and the courses just kept coming. And I got to tell you, the wow factor, uh, he could definitely put it on the plate. Um, just memorable experiences there. Yeah, it was a great, it was a great opportunity for me. And I took, and I, that's why I never really left it. I thought that was going to be the apex of my work in New York. I didn't want to open a restaurant. So once that was a clear indicator, I was like, well, there's no point really in going any further than this. You know, I don't want to go lateral into another wine director position. And I didn't want to do sure. sales. Um, right. And New York was by that time after 10 years was starting to weigh on me. And not being from New York, I didn't feel a tight, deep roots to, I mean, New York City is very transient in a lot of ways, but 10 years, I felt like I'd achieved what I could possibly do there. And then Australia had been a place I fought to get on a trip in 2004. Earlier on, I was uh, invited on a, one of those Grateful Palette junkets where I was, and Jean-Luc and I actually were the New York sort of, and Rachel Charkey um, Anyways, they flew me over there for three weeks and I fought and got off the floor um, to do that. I actually put an ultimatum and said, oh, listen, I'm leaving if I can't go on this trip. And they're like, OK, well, you can go on the trip, but you need to have two people on the floor every night to replace you. <laughs> right. So forever, I owe, I owe favors to my you still owe them Marin. favors. Are you sending them wine? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Marin Natalin is now well, he anyways, he used to, he works at Valse and uh, he used to work at Danube. Yeah. So, and Jared Shepard is. What's, what's uh, crazy, just to bring people back, uh, when you were over there in 2004, Grateful Palette, there was another big Australian import company I can't think of. But that's when America fell in love with uh, Australian wines more because it was like, there. I mean, there were more like 9,900 point wines coming to Australia back then ever. And a lot of it was of uh, uh, Barossa Shiraz. A lot of it was Shiraz. And I think it just, it was one of those perfect um moments that captured a zeitgeist of when the American palate was just uh, worshiping uh, Parker's uh, points and our palates were shaped about high alcohol, you know, intense complexity, just powerful, like knock your teeth out kind of wines. Australia with the weather makes total sense, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, 
Yeah. So, so, so you're over there and you, you kind of fall in love, but how do you get back there? I mean, you're in a different, you're in a, a different country, continent, yeah. the island, it's all, how do you get back there? And what is the, like, give me the lead up to like, I, I've, I've made enough context. Now I'm going to try to get to Australia. I think this is what I want to do. I got a, um, that trip, that first trip in 04 made a real impression. And I was wandering around beaches down here and, you know, it was spacious and pristine. And, and it was just so, such a, a gorgeous contrast to, to urban New York and, mm-hmm. and the intensity. And, and I just remember very clearly at the Victory Hotel, one of the, the great pubs down here that has a w- wonderful wine list, drinking a bottle of Raveno with a bunch of other Psalms and sitting up on this, you know, bluff looking over the Gulf and saying, why, why am I not living here? This is a special place. And, mm-hmm. and for the rest of that trip, I was really kind of gung ho to learn as much as I could and sort of a bit of a kiss ass in a certain way. I was just sort of collecting bottles and, and making good friends with a lot of the winemakers and Dan Phillips in general. And, mm-hmm. and um, Chris Ringland, who was another famous winemaker uh, who was yeah. working in Rockford and uh, they stayed in touch when I got back to New York and they became good sort of um, sort of, you know, every time Chris was in New York, we'd go out and we'd hang out and, and go out and drinking and eating. And so by the time I left Boulay, I was talking to you and I remember this in your convertible driving out to get this crab apple tree to plant over your wife's placenta. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice segue. Beautiful. I'll never go ahead. forget pulling them out of the freezer. Um <laughs> On one of the hottest days in summer. And, right. you know, and I was talking to you and you're like, you know, I was thinking about my next move and what I was going to do. And, and you said, don't, you said, you said to me, you said, don't, don't do anything simple. Don't just go to Long Island and make some money. So you do something radical, you know, you should go somewhere far away and really, and really learn and really get in deep. And, you know, whether it's Piemonte or somewhere else, but don't, don't settle for, you know, something simple. And I remember that resonated. And in the middle of like, winter in new york when i had quit my job and was totally wandering around in my sweatpants wondering what i was going to do next i think i uh, fed you on one of those days so i think about it yes <laughs> i did like more priorat john more priorat <laughs> this poor bastard yeah um yeah it was a bit, a bit of a dark time because being in new york without a job sure. you lose all of your credibility all of your um cachet right so all of a sudden you're just like any other douche wandering around yeah and uh and I got a call from, from Dan Phillips in Australia saying, hey, we want you to come and work Harvest. Um, just, you know, and obviously they were sort of grooming me to be sort of a representative for the Grateful Palate back in the U.S. I think that was part of a, the, the whole process was bring uh, somebody down with some credibility and, and, and then have them go back to the U.S. and sell these wines. And some of them were quite bombastic and rich and 100-point Shervington Shirazes and and the like, but then there was a lot of brands that they were starting to build that had no real reference to provenance wines like bitch and mm-hmm. F U and sucks with three X's and all yeah. these, these marketing wines that were tasty, but really didn't really make sense to me as far as, you know, vineyards and, and provenance. And I remember and- that time because it was, a, it was, to me, it was a race to the bottom. Cause I also went to Australia and traveled around and I fell in love with, I mean, the terroir, there was there's granite slopes and there's you know, Margaret mm. river and it's like Burgundy. And, um, and, and I came back and I was so madly in love with 
those kind of wines. And I went to a trade show at the Puck Building, and I was really excited to revisit these wines. Great Rieslings from Eden uh, Valley, and uh, I mean, just and and the only thing that was there was Yellowtail sucks and all these wines. <laughs> and I called a friend of mine, Jane Delaney, who, you know, if, in Australia. Yeah. And I said, uh, I'm really bummed because I got to tell you the, the road that the, the perception that Australian wines are taking right now, it's so short term and it's a race to the bottom and nobody wins when you're racing to the bottom. And it's just, and you know, it's a brilliant place to, for wine to be coming out of. Yeah. It has this, the tyranny of distance here where you just really hard for people to understand unless they visited the sort of, how diverse and, and varied the country is. And, and I think, yeah, you're right. It was sort of the, the dumb it down to the common denominator. We make clean, ripe, full body uh, Shiraz. And it was sad, but that was sort of the selling point. At one stage, I heard Yellowtail was almost 50% of Australian exports to the US, which is a That's very crazy. tricky number when people are buying magnums of Shiraz for $6, you know, yeah. during, especially during the GFC and the, the other troubling issues like. Um, economic issues, yeah, it became very difficult. And Australia went into definitely into a dead zone in the US, especially fine wines, as you I'm sure you can, you know, you can sure. remember it's just now kind of climbing its way back into really interesting wines. And it tends to be more natural wines now and more kind of um wines that are a bit more um not experimental, but you know, certainly pushing the boundaries away sure. from some of those earlier Parker Point wines that uh, that was like 15 years ago. It's amazing. Yeah. That's still, actually. but yeah, so that's how I got sort of back to Australia and it was, I was fine with it. Cause I, I really didn't, like I said, I didn't know what I was going to do in New York. Mm -hmm. I subletted my apartment for to the grateful palette, which is ironic for a yeah. year. And, um, and then I fell in love with a woman here who was, uh, happened to be a grape grower just by chance. Uh -huh. Wow. And, uh, and then that changed my life forever. Then it was sort of like, let's reorient to um, running a farm and learning more about viticulture and how to make um, a business work in the wine game on the other side of the on the other side of the fence, and that's be, you know that's been all encompassing ever since. Right. So, um, so you fall in love with this woman, and he, and she's selling the grapes to as a negotiant to somebody. Correct. Yeah, she had her own label at the mm -hmm. time, which was also sort of a bit of a project too. There was a um, there was a, yeah, there was a period when, um, there was a water drilling business that was kind of, again, sort of a ideal sort of business to have in a drought ridden country, but there was, she had a primary business, which was drilling for water. And then, uh, she had to take that over and the wine side of things sort of languished. And then when I came on board, I was able to start helping move some of her wines. And then I learned a bit more about distribution channels and all of those boring things, but so where, does, where we, is the birth of, of Brash Higgins? What is the birth? What's the year? And so she goes from uh, selling her grapes, then maybe making her wine uh, under her own label. And then, and I'm certainly was, she wasn't doing what you were doing now or we, what you're both doing now, Zabibo and, and Fora and doing stuff like that, right? Oh, no, no. It was very much just Shiraz and Cabernet off of right. the block here, the vineyard that she planted in 1997. So it was a, yeah, it was straightforward, uh, very sort of traditional winemaking styles. I wasn't making the wines. It was made by another another person. And then what happens when you have too much wine, right? You have to start moving it. So we had to start discounting it to start moving volume. And then once you've discounted it, you can't really recover. So, and I think it was only a matter of time before I started to kind of get more involved in 
in the whole process anyways, by even we started like in 2009, removing Shiraz to trial near Davila, which is the first Nero block in McLaren Vale. Right. And that was really exciting being an outsider, New York city, Psalm kind of let loose in Disneyland. Right. <laughs> I'm like, is this possible? I can actually take out Shiraz and put in Nero from Sicily and, and, and it's like, yeah. And so we did it. And then it was like, well, no one's made these wines here before. So I might as well, this might as well be my PhD in winemaking. Right. And then and so, we made. So did you learn under the tutelage of another winemaker there, or you just took classes or, or, or your partner helped because she was already making wine. And I think, no, I never did you lean on anyone, any other winemakers. I learned a lot from some local winemakers as far as flow and as far as the sort of logistics of running a winery and how, you know, it's all started to be networking as well as far and to meet different, um, just different people that you can collaborate close by people that had similar ethos or were interested in sort of exploring new territory. I think that was the first part here was, but yeah, there were definitely a couple of winemakers that I could ask a lot of questions to and just some of the basic building blocks involved in, in sound winemaking, you know, and then there was a lot of opportunities to ask questions like why, and they probably got quite sick of that. I think that's where I got the Higgins part of my nickname was, you know, Mr. Higgins from my fair lady. I was the guy oh. asking a million oh. questions. Like, why do you do? And they're like, Jesus Christ, stop it, mate. And I was like, all right. Uh, but um, so, so tell us so now. Um, so what is the first vintage and what are the first uh, grape routes? And let's talk about what you actually make, because um, I, I mean, the labeling is, is it's, it's unique. It's colorful. It's, 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 it says something. And then on top of it, you're, uh, you're experimenting with M4, these neutral vessels. And uh, so what is, what is behind that? Are you drinking, you know, Rabola Jala from, you know, Friuli and some top producers and going, yeah, I think we could do this. And I, I'm curious how they do it. And then just kind of all trial by error for you. Yeah. 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 That's it. Essentially there was a, um, I think that's where it comes in handy having those 10 years in the trenches in New York and then yeah. getting a palate learning how to taste wine and what you actually like personally and getting that's a huge factor. And then traveling, having that sort of exposure with the, with Boulay and those restaurants where you could get on an A-list and be, you know, you can go to France and you can go to South Africa and then, and, and Australia. And I had a chance to really learn a lot from those regions and the winemakers that I admired there. And then, yeah, there was a, there's no real strong appellation system here. It's similar to California in a lot of ways, you know, where you can, make Trousseau and you can make, you know, all sorts of different things and still label them under the, the GI that you live in. Um, so that was open a lot of doors. And then and you're getting those uh, uh, clippings of Trousseau or Ribola or Zabibo. Are you getting them from local nurseries or do they import them or they're, I mean, how does it work? Yeah. Some of them like Zabibo, which is mm -hmm. Muscat of Alexandria has been planted here since world war two. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, there's a very old heritage vineyards that, you know, a lot of those grapes, that's a Zabibo is a whole nother, Right. animal, you know, cause that's a hot weather, um, thick skin, fresh eating grape that goes mm -hmm. into some mostly kind of cheaper box wines and less fancy wines. We, we push that wine further than probably it, it, I was gonna say it deserves to be pushed, yeah. but we probably <laughs> but, give it more attention than it's ever gotten in its life. Say highly aromatic and beautiful. Another one is, is just buying a bulk wine. I think that's where the hand would come in and the farming. Yeah. And also the winemaking, the techniques are yeah. very, very instrumental with that. We were, so, yeah, so like grapes like Bastardo or Trousseau or um, those are coming in through commercial nurseries, which will then usually put them into biosecurity and quarantine for three years. And then, 
you know, they're also exploring clonal and making sure that what's coming into Australia is sound and, and, and there's a market for it. Even things like Norella Mascalese have, have recently entered into the market here, which, you know, you don't want to be a fruit bowl to everything in the world. Right. Um, right. And I think you're always kind of wondering, like, grapes like Assyrtico and Norella, aren't they maybe better off just left where they are, which I sure. kind of feel like they are, like, just leave them there. Mm-hmm. Um, but Nirodavala was one of those grapes where we're like, this is just makes perfect sense because it's hot, it's dry. We've got water shortages and fires and the country is, is in a severe drought. Uh, we needed to looking for grapes that were delicious, but then also were more bulletproof and tough and had acid and had power. And um, Nirodavala was a great revelation. Like, wow, I can get these grapes here and we can start trialing it, remove Shiraz and start giving it a go. And it was perfect. You know, we hardly had to water it at all. Great acidity. Right. And then my whole inkling on that was, well, let's, we've got two years. We'll go down to Sicily. We'll go visit Coast Winery, nice. who was, which was a fairly, the Coast Pethos was a big sort of inspiration for that wine. You know, I remember that wine. Yeah. I was drinking that at Morea with friends and um, like, dang, this is a really impressive wine. Cause it was so finely etched and really bright and really vibrant and and then, uh, so that was a, wasn't much of a step then to come back to McLaren Vale and find a local potter, mm-hmm. um, rather than trusting the Italians or Spanish or Georgians to send me their best clay pots. I had a feeling they might not oh, send us right. their best pots, might be right. all the cracked ones, but, um, and so we found a local potter here in Adelaide, which was also exciting. Just did a, a bit of a detective search and on a cocktail napkin found this guy and he's like, I'm your guy. And I was like, cool. So we've got a new variety, relatively brand new variety. And then a technique, which sort of harkens back to Jesus Christ, which is even more interesting. Heard um, yeah. Well, it's always good to drop JC's name, you know? Oh, I think yeah, so. absolutely. <laughs> or maybe even just Roman emperors. So, but that was it as well. And this is kind of, I think we've seen that a lot in industrial um, winemaking or music or anything. So people are harkening back to simpler times when there's mm-hmm. less chemicals, less chicanery, less less high tech, you know, less glycol and less all of these things that Australia did really well and still does really pristine winemaking, but there wasn't a lot of soul in some of these wines I was drinking. And it was like, well, we have an opportunity here to introduce vessels that are neutral from the soils that around the vineyard wine geek heaven. So is these, so these uh, vessels are made from the soils in that area, right? Yeah, correct. I mean, that is just really cool. There's a there's a guy on Mallorca, four kilos, who does that, and I think, uh, and he's uh, you know hunting out varietals, but he's making his own vessels, and it just makes so much sense, right, on every level, mm. right, to be using I mean, local resources and yeah, I mean, terrible. It does. <laughs> it does. I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, I wouldn't force the potter to use my clay soil. Like that's like forcing an artist to use some ear paint or. But it's all local in the sense that, yeah, and we're, we're, we're funding a local potter who up to that point had maybe done 100-liter tandoori ovens and lots of strawberry pots and other things. And now he had a whole new revenue stream. He's making these clay M4s for 200-liter-plus vessels for winemakers all over South Australia and Australia and New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's got a whole new business out of it, which is also really rewarding to find yes. a, lo- give a local And they work. You know, They give the wines. We do that with the Nirodavala and with the Zadibo. And we just leave them on skins for five months, you know, let them ferment wild in these pots. They grow a a a a beautiful layer of floor, volunteers itself over the top, which helps protect them from VA and from oxygen. And and then at the end of winter, like right now, we'll take everything out and press all the skins and then consolidate it into into a wine. And 
and that's that's it. So there's really no waste. There's no sort of M4 selection. Everything goes in, and you just kind of sit on your hands and pray. Yeah, <laughs> bringing back Jesus. Um, so yeah. how many how many wines are you making right now? Uh, at any given time, probably twelve to thirteen. And Small there's lots, always, right? I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, nothing. Nothing's big. We've maybe 400 cases of something like Shiraz, um, which we grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all on a human scale for me. So it's not like it's just me. So I don't have, on this Devo, every Australian winery has a Devo. Mm-hmm. Uh, it helps out a lot. He's, he's sort of my seller hand. But essentially, yeah, it's all small scale. Um, and we try to make enough where we can supply things like the, the state fruit, like Shiraz and Cabernet Sauvignon and Nero Davila. Um, try to make enough that we can have at least enough for a year, you know, to supply all the different markets in Australia. And now that we've kind of grown uh, into the global scene a bit more too, it's like the U S like Zabibo is, has become quite popular in, in the U S. So it's even a more um, sort of miraculous thing to imagine this little uh, Muscat of Alexandria grape being able to kind of find whole new markets, you know, we've been kind of working on it for eight or nine years now. And it's literally like wine made by a caveman. And it just astounds me. <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah, it's just it's 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 incredible. I think that's the bonus and the plus of getting away from the Parkerized wines, those big wines. That's the beauty of it. I mean, uh, in uh, certainly in, in the U.S., I mean, people they want to be challenged. They want interesting. They want as natural as possible, whatever that means to them, without going down that political slope. Um, yeah. And that's cool. I think I think I love the fact that the Americans are now drinking uh, much better wine and, and interesting wine. And I see when I go to neighbors' houses. Um, what is the one? What's the uh, moment you felt like I'm not so much of an expat anymore, or do you always feel like that being there? I know. I mean, certainly during the Trump presidency, I felt a deep kinship with my fellow Americans. I could. I mean, that was a very that was a very strong reminder that I still care a lot about the U S and sure. And it was so prevalent. The news cycles here were so, so you know, rampant um, as I can only imagine what they're like back home. So I don't feel like I've ever lost that sort of connection, especially because the language and it's not that vastly different time zones and seasons mess with your head. Like now in August, it's cold here. You're used to sweating it out in New York and taking three showers a day and being yeah, like, I took two today. Yeah. <laughs> those basic things, you know, like part of just being alive, I think are the things that probably make it the most complicated and not having a sporting culture that I really understand here. Um, you know, we're growing up on, on, you know, basketball and baseball and American gridiron and, you know, yeah. there's sports here that I never played. And there's big, big culture of that. And I'm sort of an ex-athlete. So you always kind of feel slightly those kind of things, you know, are, are, are things that remind me that I, I do miss home, um, Mexican food. Um, oh, know, right. Yeah. Like that, you know, really good hamburgers, like, you know, certain things that you take for granted back in the States food wise. Um, wine culture is caught up here drastically. So there's tons of cool, small importers that bring over all the wines in the world now, whereas 10, 12 years ago, it was very limited. What was getting to Australia from overseas, quite sectarian and very high taxes and things like that. We're making it difficult to drink, you know, Jura wines and all the other things that were gobbling up back in the U S. So it's now the playing fields leveled out a lot here. So it's not, I don't feel as, as nostalgic or homesick. Um, my family's still in Chicago, which is sad. So I always miss, and this, oh, especially, travel restrictions now i haven't been able to 
to get home to see to see them for a couple of years. So that's starting to that's starting to grate on me a little bit. But mm-hmm. I think it's just so exciting to be able to set up a whole new existence on the other side of the planet. You know, where it is kind of fun to have a bit of a rebirth and and be close to countries that you know normally you would have to plan years and years to get to somewhere like Vietnam or Japan or um, even New Zealand or yeah. or traveling around Australia or. South Africa. I mean, you're quite close to a lot of different things. And so, so do you that's dual all citizenship. How does that work? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a dual. Huh. So I have that's... a passport for each country. You know, the one trip that you went on, I wish I was part of. And by the way, I totally forgot the, that story of me telling you to do something really crazy. I'm like, okay. Um, yeah. The ones, the one thing you always, you ha- always had wanderlust. You're always an adventurer. Um, I think your, your, your tales uh, going through Vietnam, uh, I believe it was um, the few that you've told me, I just couldn't stop laughing. And I think you should put, make that into some essays and uh, <laughs> or, or put it somewhere in, in the tasting room, uh, your you know, notes from Higgins or something. I think it's just, uh, it's, it's worth, people should hear it or it should be put somewhere on your website, a, a travel log. It is um, there. Oh, it's is there. It? Okay. All right. I got to look. Like, I'm sorry. You got to go deep. Like you got to be like, in, you know, like, prison or somewhere to yeah. go to this rabbit hole of my website, but right. it's called like Brad Hickey's wine odyssey. Okay. I'm not, I'm now, I think everybody should uh, be looking for it. It's uh, I've heard the stories. They're brilliant. Now we'll reread them. Uh, I'm super excited for that. Um, uh, I'm proud of the courage it took for you to do that. Um, you know, go to another country, um, not learn how to make wine. And then on top of just not learning how to make wine, but then to even go a step further and do uh, varietals and find somebody who's going to make your own M4 that's local and supporting the local co- economy. I mean, those are, that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a great life you've built. I've always tell people, just try to build the best life you can. And you, you're certainly on track and you have, uh, you have a couple chapters to go. You know, we are at the part of the show, we're at the end, but where I always ask my guests, so... Um, you know, Jesus Christ, who we mentioned earlier, comes to you in a dream and he says, we are all going to be gone. You're going to be leaving this astral plane. But you make such great wine, Brash Higgins, that I'm going to give you a last meal and a last drink and a last piece of music before you leave. So what are you eating? What are you drinking? And what piece of music you're listening to as, uh, as your eyes close? Yeah, I, um, but there's a lot of things to look at there, aren't there? Yes, there are. <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of great moments. I can think of like a half dozen meals I probably had with you, even, you know, the most basic things. Cause I'm stuffed up right now. I was thinking about how good that Vietnamese pho at Hoi An oh. restaurant across from Boulay used to. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this is your last meal and your last oh, yeah. drink. Yeah. I know I'm stalling, I'm stalling. Yeah, I'm working are. on this. <laughs> uh, you know, I think you wanted to be something that's clearly, I think for me, you know, it'd be something tied into my sort of, I grew up in Chicago and I think the great meals for me were always those sort of, um, you know, the German fathers in their black socks and sandals, you know, wearing uh, and just cooking bratwurst and sauerkraut and, that sort of choucroute garni sort of thing that, you know, you can get so well in the Midwest and especially in those German soccer families that I used to, I grew up playing soccer around a lot of these guys. So that would right. certainly be probably, and then you can just open it up to like really nice Czech Pilsner. And then if you don't mind, 
Jesus wouldn't mind. I'd love to just have an array of Rieslings, Alsatian, uh, German, you know, and just do some Austrian Rieslings. And, and I think that would be a lovely, because then, you know, within those, uh, fruits, you can have, you know, your pork and your potatoes. Yeah, sure. I, again, I love the idea of just, uh, somewhere in the book of Apocrypha, Jesus has a, a wine notes. <laughs> verticals of Rieslings uh, or, or, you know, maybe to himself, he's like at the feast of Cana, we turned water into wine. He second guesses himself and, you know, God, you know what? I really wish I did Malvasia. <laughs> and, so- like, and there'd be three different types of mustard with that dish, mind right. you. So there'd be yes. different mustard and then there would be, uh, yeah, there would definitely be the, the sort of boudoir beers. And then uh, I would definitely throw in some, some Rieslings. And that would probably do me really well because you want a long feast where you can kind of sort of stall, right? I don't just want to have a nacho. <laughs> no, absolutely not. You got, you got a lot to think about before you, before you, <laughs> you, you, you disappear into like another universe. And what piece of music is playing? What yeah. song? Right? Oh, man. Well, I think he wants something, you know, I'd want something that's fairly epic, you know, beyond just... Um, yeah, maybe something German as well. I mean, I was thinking about this because I had a feeling that uh, this might pop up. There was, there's a great, well, I mean, the first choice was like Across the Universe by the Beatles, which is one of my favorite songs with John Lennon. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And, um, but I think really sort of, I would go back to Beethoven, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've ever listened to his uh, his sort of late string quartets. There's one called, uh, it's string quartet number 15. Uh, it's the third movement, uh, which is just one of the most stunning bits of music I've ever heard in my life. Wow. And it's about 15 minutes. So again, that would sort of drag things on a little while, you know, while you're <laughs> stuffing your face with sausages. If Jesus would be wearing a watch, he'd be looking at it going, come on, let's go. Yeah. Come on, pal. <laughs> you're like, come on, can I play in a gutta de vida? Uh, what else do we got? Tubular bells. Right. Tubular no, bells would be a good one. Yeah. That would okay. drive you insane. Then you'd yeah. want to leave. You'd be like, you'd no. You'd probably kill yourself. Um, yeah. Well, uh, so, hey, I want people to be able to find you, and I want them uh, to follow you and search for your wine. So uh, tell us how to do that. Fresh Higgins is, yeah, we're imported in the U.S. with uh, Hudson Wine Brokers, so Henry Hudson, um, which is great. And so, you know, the wines have made it into maybe 14 or 15 states now. Um which is great to be able to go back home and visit, you know, Florida and Texas and California and even New York um, and uh, be able to walk around the market and show the wines. It's deeply gratifying as you can imagine to be able to come back with something. Sure. Um, so brashiggins.com is our website here. And yeah, I mean, you'll find our wines in the UK a little bit in obviously Australia has been a key market here. We've focused on that number one. Um, particularly for ops, I mean, we never could have predicted this COVID thing, but clearly export markets are very um, sort of volatile. So we've done really well with promoting the wines and selling them here in, in Australia. And um, yeah, and in, into Southeast Asia and, you know, various other sort of small importers can, can bring things in. We're just, we are finding it's certain markets too love the sort of new wave Australian too, where we're showing more individual um, more iconic, sort of iconoclastic styles of, you know, we can do a lot of interesting stuff here outside of the sort of mainstream wines. Um, cool. So, yeah, I think you, you, you should see our wines around the place. Awesome. Hey, man, uh, I can't thank you enough 
uh, for bringing me down memory lane a little bit and for being on DOTJ podcast. Um, this was great. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, brother. Uh, miss you. Yeah, I miss you too. And um, I'll check with you tomorrow. I'll give you a buzz. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check us out at dotjpodcast.com. Until then, I'll see you at the bar. <laughs>